0: Hello again and welcome to Motos and Friends, a weekly podcast brought to you by the editorial staff at Ultimate Motorcycling. I am Arthur Coldwell's. This week we have a couple of unusual chats for you. In the first segment, senior editor Nick De Sena talks to me about the new Ovale GP2 minibike. This is a full race machine that is scaled down to work on kart tracks, and yet, it is designed to give a rider the full race bike experience. The Avali is not a toy, and many, many professional racers use one to enhance their skill set and help with their training. The second segment comes to you from the recent Barber Vintage Festival held annually at Barber Motorsports Park in Leeds, Alabama. George Barber himself was kind enough to spare me a few minutes to chat about the new Advanced Design Centre project that has been created on the top floor of the museum. Ably headed up by Brian Case of Motus Motorcycles fame, George Barber's Design Centre is there to encourage and explore design. He has generously outfitted the center with every type of creative and production tool you can imagine, including a couple of high-end 3D printing machines and full clay modeling capability. Brian Case has already collaborated with ex-Ducati designer Pierre Blanche, and their first project, done remotely with Pierre residing at home in South Africa, I might add, is a modern take on the exquisite early 90s super mono, designed at the time by Pierre. The Advanced Design Center is a heck of a project, and George Barber is justifiably proud of it. I apologize in advance that the live audio quality recorded in the Design Center during the Armour Racing is not great, but I do believe it's listenable. I hope you agree. George Barber is a lovely, generous man, and I greatly enjoyed talking briefly with him. I hope you enjoy our chat as well. So I was just reading your story on the uh, on the Ovale, and uh, you know you're riding the GP two, which is uh, the slightly bigger one of uh, of the of the models. And I mean, you're you're not a small guy. I mean, what are you five ten or something?
1: Yeah, um, exactly five ten, and um, I don't know what I weigh right now could be anywhere from 180 to 200 who knows we we don't have to get into that don't worry
0: but uh uh, you you look pretty good on it i mean looking at the pictures you look pretty good on that thing i mean it's i mean you say in the story that it's uh it's not it's a little smaller than a than a normal bike but man i've got to
1: tell you it looks fun what did you what were your thoughts on it well the the gp zero i rode one for Maybe just a couple of minutes. Alex Martino um, used to own one. And uh, I remember getting on that and I knew it was possible to ride. I just, it was cramped. Um, and the, the GP0 is probably like maybe six, maybe between like five and seven inches smaller than the GP2. What sort of age group is the GP0 aimed at? Like actual children okay so maybe up to like six or seven years old maybe um well, i mean it goes up to whatever age can fit on it you know that because the reason it became popular is because MotoGP guys were using them, right no i mean they're they're truly intended to get like kids on them you know as young as like three four or five because that's when they're starting some of those kids in racc and i was i was actually looking at that yesterday i mean marquez still has something to do with racc um and if you go back a number of years and look at his Moto3 bikes, uh, he's still involved with it. But still, um, that's here nor there. That's the European take. Um, but yeah, it, it's aimed at kids, 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 kids. Okay.
0: But the GP2 that you rode,
1: is there a GP1 that's in the middle? Or does it go from 0 to 2? Yeah, it just goes 0 to 2. Okay. So the, the GP2 is um, you know, still aimed at youth, obviously. And developing youth, and that's its primary purpose. Secondary purpose would be uh, developing just you know racers in general, because it is a lot more we'll say we'll say a healthier size. Um, and so an average adult can get on it. You know, I'm at five ten, um, so I, I fit on it pretty well. And although the, the photos might look a little bit, little bit silly because you know it is a mini bike. I would say it's not exactly all that far removed from the riding position that you'd experience on a traditional super sport or super bike these days. Like, yes, it is smaller. The seat height is significantly lower, but the overall riding position is relative to what you'd experience on that sort of thing. So if you're limber enough to get on one of those and do it, you can probably do it on a GP2. But it's importantly it's a training tool and that's that's sort of what i want to make clear um it's not really like a fun little pit bike um not that you really should be investing that type of money for something like that but yeah if you want to get better at racing and and just build your skills as a a road racer then something like the gp2 is uh an extremely valuable and i would say potent training tool um there's really nothing on the market like it right now sure what why is
0: an ovale gp2 potentially more valuable than just say uh, you know an r3 or a ninja 400 or what have you on a on a normal size track i mean you know so the ovale is a little smaller but why would somebody go to the effort and the expense of of buying a a second bike and doing that do you do you get that much more out of it
1: oh yeah absolutely i mean If we even remove the, um, you know, the, the youth aspect of the whole thing. So we're just talking about it as a general enthusiast club racer, um, type that might be buying the GP two, you know, you're in your twenties or thirties or forties, whatever, it doesn't matter. Um, the feedback and feel that you get from a mini bike that is completely designed as a training tool for road racing specifically is completely unmatched. And I don't say that in any hyperbolic way. The the amount of feedback that you get from a size or or a machine of this size is just not there on larger motorcycles that have more physics working against them. You have more weight. um, You know, you have more rotational mass in the wheels. You have more horsepower. All of these things hide some of that feedback and lower the sensitivity that a mini moto is able to deliver and that comment for the mini motos extends to a wide variety of mini motos whether it's a converted you know 12 inch wheel dirt bike or one of the KO mini GP 150 MRs can't recall their names you know mini bikes have an inherent sensitivity to them that a larger machine just doesn't have so that's the core value of it is your you're getting in touch with what the motorcycle is doing and all of its dynamics on a much um more amplified level I'll say and also at a much at much slower speeds true so you're you're closer to the
0: ground and you know you're at slower speeds and presumably on kart tracks I mean I've done a lot of kart racing in my time and on kart tracks you get a lot of corners coming up very quickly so so presumably
1: you're just practicing a lot more of everything all the time yeah yeah that's that's a valuable point to to you know expand on as well you know a car track you're going um tr- typically you're going much slower than a, a standard you know motorcycle track would accommodate for whether that's a lightweight bike a you know 600 supersport or a big bike so you're learning these techniques and training these techniques and experimenting at a significantly lower speed Thus, you could argue that it's much safer. You know, Secondly, kart track lap times are usually half to three quarter of what a, an average you know, lap at a big bike would, or a big bike track would be. And like you said, you're doing a lot of cornering. So you're training at a high rate of speed, high intensity um, sort of situation. And then there's also the financial aspect of it as well. So the average track day, might cost you between 140 to 200 something dollars depending on where you are in the country and depending on the track average cart track is 20 to 30 bucks for the whole day and then you're also dealing with the tires that we used Um, for the u.s importer uh, they've decided to go with the pirelli diablo um, rosso scooter tire so you're dealing with common 12 inch scooter tires instead of slicks or high performance you know rubber and so you're saving a lot of money in that regard and on that note the gp2 is kind on tires as you might imagine because you're not dealing with insane horsepower you know you can get a lot of laps out of these things and you know that that definitely saves you
0: some money right well talking of horsepower and the engine i see that it's traditionally carburetted which is obviously a good thing for home mechanics and you know, if, if you or your dad is, is doing the mechanicing. And I think that was a great point. But, you know, if you're looking at an engine that's putting out in the region of 30 horsepower, and you are a, I don't know, whatever, 150, 160 pound adult, does that just, does it just feel horribly slow? And uh, I mean, I'm talking
1: about in terms of acceleration, you know, how, how's, how is it to actually ride this thing? So it, it feels properly quick. And that's, That's something that, you know, when we talk about a lot of bikes, whether it's a full-size motorcycle or not, looking past the spec sheet is really important. Um, The engine itself is a Daytona 190, and those that are familiar with the mini-moto scene or kart racing in general know that Daytona is a Japanese-based manufacturer. And according to their specs, you can see roughly 20 to 25 HP. The Ovale has a really sweet. Um, full aero exhaust system on it. And it sounds, honestly, it's, you know, it it has a similar sound to like a full-blown, you know, 250 motocross bike or, you know, something of that, that nature. Wow. Um, It's, it's loud. And, um, you know, it's the first time you kick it up, you're like, Oh, okay. (laughs) There's something going on here. But in terms of acceleration and just raw power, that, that 20 or so HP goes a long way. I mean, you know, if you think about converted um, mini bikes like Groms and, and things like that, you're looking at, you know, if I remember properly, you're looking at something like 10 or 12 HP. And that all feels great in the tight, you know, confines of a kart track. With the Ovale, it's got a little bit more legs. You have a four speed transmission. Um, oh, you're you're you talking know, double the horsepower of a Grom or a, a, you know, Cowie Z125, something like that. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, I don't actually know how fast going on it because I was never really paying that close attention to the dash. And I don't recall if our optional dash even listed speed. But, you know, the fact that I was catching up to people on DRZ400s and that's, you know, we're ignoring scale levels and, you know, things like that and you know whether these people are actually opening the bikes up fully you know it's it gets going good <laughs> there's no denying it and off the apex you know depending on the gear you're in it'll even you know do a little little power wheelie and um guys yeah. that are really well versed <laughs> know how to you know get everything out of them but the lap times they're running on them are not just competitive they're they're good very 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 good so you know in terms of acceleration and just power it's got it and then you have to factor in that the bike weighs something like 150 ish pounds dry with fluids you can probably say that's in the mid160s um, so it's incredibly light uh, that's that's significantly lighter, lighter than the full-blown street bikes that I mentioned before, like the Honogram and the Z125 Pro. Um, and it's also got double horsepower and a chassis that is specifically designed for aggressive riding. So it has everything, every aspect of this machine. It has a leg up against anything that you can convert for cart riding. Not to say that those bikes won't be good. This will just be better because it's purpose-built. Um, but yeah, the the Daytona 190 just it has, it has some bite. There's no doubt about it. It's got, you know, low end, not so much. You spin it up and then you really get into some good mid range before it tapers at the very top. So you're kind of always looking for a fifth gear on those longer straightaways, but you're at a car track. And that happens for fractions of a second at best. So before you're back down the gearbox, then flipping through something, you know, so, uh, you know, that that's where we're at with the engine.
0: Very cool. And so the chassis is, is it sort of relatively stiff or, or is it, well, again, you've stressed that it's not a toy. So I would imagine that the suspension and the chassis actually feels like a real motorcycle and you get full feedback on it. Is that right?
1: hundred percent. You know, the, the chassis itself, you know, the Ovale is an imported product. So it's a Italian designed. And one of the main things that they did is look at the Sort of modern design ethos of your typical super sport and super bikes that are out there today. So they went as far as looking at swing arm angle in relation to, um, you know, sprocket uh, height and things of that nature, and making sure that they were essentially mini or miniaturizing, you know, sport bike geometry. And that's a far cry away from, you know, Converting a 12-inch dirt bike, which a lot of people did in the past, still do. You see it at many, 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 you know, club meets and things like that. But again, it's a different purpose. Um, so you are miniaturizing, you know, a, a much bigger um, sport bike. And to that end, they take things a step further because the steel trellis frame, you know, it's it gives proper feedback. It feels stiff, but adding to that stiff feel is, um, you know, fully adjustable suspension. We had the optional 38 mil fork with uh, fully adjustable internals by Mupo. And then it also has a fully, fully adjustable shock in the rear. And that's something that is really important on a bike of this level, because then you can really start experimenting with geometry changes, suspension changes. And if you're a rider that is really focused on pushing yourself, understanding those dynamics of the motorcycle is important when you get onto the bigger bikes. You're faced with different race tracks, and you need to understand what the bike is doing. So, to your point about feedback, that's exactly what it builds. And this bike allows you to get that skill set ingrained and understand what the suspension is doing. Because, you know, and then it plays into body positioning too. And this is a good example: if you load the bike too much in the front, you'll feel the wheel start to chatter. You learn that you know, where, where grip is going and where it's coming in. Um, and that's the type of sensitivity that really comes through or vice versa on the rear, you get on the gas, you can actually feel the rear end start to squirm and, and, you know, dare I say it's spin up as you would on a bigger bike. Uh, if you're too aggressive at full lean, you know, on things like, you know, lower powered Groms or, um, you know, I think back to like a, a little track day that I did on the KLX 300. The, between the bike and the weight and things like that it, it would be a pretty pretty tall order to to properly high side a KLX 300 supermoto um i'm sure someone can do it but you know <laughs> right. it's a pretty modestly horsepowered powered bike and um you know on something like the ovale well yeah you could easily spin the rear up and spit yourself off because it's trying to emulate everything that you're going to experience on a bigger machine, whether that's a, you know, R3 or Ninja 400 or a, you know, uh, R6 or, you know, Jixter 600 or a 1000. So all of the feedback and all of the things that you can do on a bigger bike apply there. So that's when we talk about, you know, building your skill set, and that's kind of the next point that that really leans on all this.
0: So so it's literally a full-size motorcycle that's simply been scaled down a little bit. It's just a sort of, you know, 60% sized real motorcycle, but it is a real
1: motorcycle. Oh, absolutely. And for its base price of $6,499, it better be a scaled down, (laughs) you know, proper motorcycle. And that's the thing and that and that's what really makes the clear division between this and other products that you could convert for a go-kart track use and things like that you know you are spending quite a bit of money to buy into this you know so if you're doing it you have to be serious and it is a serious tool there's no doubt about that of course there's room for enthusiasts to get in there if you're a club racer or you're a track day guy and you just want to get better yeah of course but the price becomes more justified when you look at its purpose
0: i have to say it doesn't it doesn't sound that expensive to me i mean i don't want to minimize it but but to me i mean you look at people who've got you know water toys they go out and buy themselves a couple of uh, you know personal watercraft you know jet skis what have you you know you look at any kind of you know boats that those are all way more expensive than this kind of thing oh absolutely Absolutely. I realized that, you know, aspiring motorcycle races were all pretty impecunious, you know, and it's like, oh, you know, a couple of hundred bucks for a set of tires. But, but I mean, this isn't crazy pricing. I mean, if this was, you know, $10,000, $15,000, I'd be sort of shaking my head a bit. But I think it's, if you're serious, it's kind of doable. And if you're, you know, a dad and you've got a sort of an up and coming, you know, kid and you guys want to go out and have some fun. It actually doesn't sound that bad. Sure, you could save yourself some money, but it actually sounds doable to me.
1: no, it, it's not definitely not out of the realm of possibilities. Um, and then you you really kind of put the bike under the microscope and look at what you're getting. I mean, it has a proper chassis, as we've just described, and then everything else that's involved with it, you know, f- you know full CNC machines, you know, tr- upper and lower triples, um, aluminum swing arm, again, proper chassis dynamics, clip-ons that can be adjusted, adjustable rear sets, um, you can adjust geometry, and all these things are there, and you go, okay, well, there's a lot going on for
0: that. J1 brakes, I mean,
1: J1 brakes, that's serious stuff. Yeah, yeah, you know, J1 is a a company that we see on, you know, KTMs and uh, many other manufacturers. I think Kawasaki World Super might use them, don't they, I think? Yeah. Yeah, of course. Well, that's that's the the unobtainium right there. But, you know, <laughs> right. yeah, yeah. You know J1 is a, a legitimate brake manufacturer. It's typically, I would say they're like the, you know, you have your a, A-list Brembos and things like that. And J1 is, I don't want to say B with a negative connotation, but they're typically on more affordable motorcycles. That's not to say that the company doesn't make high-end products, which they do. They just make stuff that typically on more affordable um specced bike except they work competently if not well in most cases so this is you know this is a company that makes real products and in this case this is actually one of their more niche offerings so it's a proper radial caliper um you know and it works impressively well and that's sort of the, the cool thing about it is you know it has real brakes on like you know a rom or something like that where you're like okay you know they work (laughs) they're effective and stopping but but this is the real deal
0: okay so you're so you're coming into turn one at the end of adam straight away at kart track and you're doing your best you know top right rasgatlioglu impression on the brakes and flicking it into that nice little bowl i mean
1: yeah i can see it I can definitely yeah see. I mean that would be the uh the ideal idealistic um sort of outcome my my top rack Raz Gatlioglu impression is more like upsetting the chassis by breaking too much getting squirrely and then almost crashing into the corner but uh <laughs> yeah. you know it's you and me both All right. so um there, there are no extended stoppies for me however a more skilled rider you know they'll, they'll figure it out. Um, yeah, I've actually, I've seen, I've seen a Josh Heron, uh, YouTube video with him. I mean,
0: and he's pushing that thing. I mean, it's, it's impressive,
1: you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, guys like Josh Heron are big, big proponents of the Ovali products and they jumped on it probably about a year and year and change ago, maybe a little bit more. Um, and, uh, in the MotoGP paddock, as well as a handful of riders, um, you know, some of the Ducati Promac riders, uh, Alex Rins, to name a few, they've really gone full bore with training on the Ovales among their wide variety of other training tools, you know, supermoto, motocross, you know, just regular cycling, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the things that they often do is train on Ovales. Uh, here in the States, Josh Heron is definitely flying the ovaly flag, uh, you know, the most aggressively, and he trains on it quite frequently. And at uh, Apex and Adams car tracks, which are in Southern California, you know, their their lap times are insane. Granted, he's a, you know, national champion and has done time in the Moto2 paddock and, you know, world-class rider in that respect, but they're going properly fast. And that's, that really gives context to what this product is capable of. You know, if people of that skill level sure are able to extract as much as they do out of it. Just kind of imagine what it would do for someone that's just getting their feet wet uh, with, with the entire experience.
0: Sure. But here's, here's a silly question. Does anybody ever put this on the road? I mean, is it, is it streetable? I mean, would there be any, do they sell a street version?
1: No, no, this is hundred percent track use only. You're, you don't have to register it. You're essentially buying, you know, not essentially you are buying a race bike. So no insurance, no registration, nothing like that, you know, and that's, that is a change from some other mini bikes that we've seen in, in the past with the Honda NSR 50, the Yamaha YSR 50. Um, and I believe the Yamaha was le- street legal in the United States. And I think there were a year or two of the NSR 50 from Honda that, that were street legal. Um, but that, that really does highlight a point. in the mini bike market, unlike the motocross side, there haven't been a lot of, you know, full-blown training tools like this as in you know fully fared miniaturized sport bikes because if i'm talking about the honda nsr50 and the yamaha ysr50 which were originally introduced in the late 80s and pretty popular throughout the 90s and the year right now is 2021 that kind of drives the point home without <laughs> me going further <laughs> right
0: yeah 40 year gap but yeah yeah okay well thank you it sounds like you really enjoyed it and you really sort of rate the thing
1: oh yeah i mean i i genuinely want to own one of these just to hone my own skills you know whether that be for club racing stuff that i do on a, a Ninja 400 or just general riding skills and developing my my feedback and uh, skill set for press trips you know it's um it's an extremely valuable tool and that's the point that I really want to get across. You know, it's it's something that is pointed, yes. But if you're in that that ballpark, you're going to get a lot out of it. So that's the main thing. Um, and, uh, you know, Brandon Kritu, the uh, co-founder of RISE Moto, who happens to be the US importer of volley products, that's sort of his core mission as well. Um, he's developed the moto america mini cup which is a ovale spec series that follows for at least four rounds the uh moto america superbike championship and so bringing this product in is just an effort from former racers like brandon uh, Creetu, and I, I shouldn't say former because he still does some racing um, to develop the american you know road racing paddock again give kids a tool to really start, you know, building those skill sets early, just as they do in Europe. I mean, the, the joke is about MotoGP, you know, they're training kids at, you know, four, five, six years of age and getting them into racing. Well, there's there's a reason why you see so many Spanish and Italian names up on the podium in MotoGP. Um, I would say world superbike, but recently it's been Rea. So he's English. That doesn't apply. But, uh, well, he, he's actually
0: Irish, but he is British. Oh. oh, oh, oh. Yeah, no, don't, don't ever accuse him of being English. Your poor guy Sorry. will be. <laughs> I know, I, I've committed a faux
1: pas. Well, faux pas but, um, <laughs> he's a nice guy. I'm, I'm sure he'll give you a pass No, um, you know, back to the point, you know, the, the effort that, that Brandon Credu is, is trying to put in here is, to help build up the paddock in the same way that the, the European paddocks are, are doing it. You know, they're investing in riders early and giving them the tools to do so. Um, it wasn't all that long ago that we had a raft of American riders moving up to the world stage, whether that be World Superbike or MotoGP, and uh, an extremely strong national championship. And this, I think, is just the first move to really start building the base in association with Moto America, which has made great strides in recent years. Now, it's a little bit off topic, but it reiterates the point that this is a tool to become a racer or better yourself as a rider and racer. Yeah. Again, an enthusiast tool.
0: So it's a, it's a tool, not a toy.
1: Yeah. But you're still going to have like insane fun on it. I mean, it's getting on it is, is ridiculous. So you just if you have the opportunity, do it, you know, and uh, go from there. I'd love to. All right.
0: Hey, well, thanks for your insight. Really appreciate it. Good talking to you, as always. Cool, thank you. In this second segment, I got to chat for a few minutes with Mr George Barber himself, and we talked about not just the Barber Museum and motorsports facility, but also about his new brainchild, the Advanced Design Centre, now residing on the top floor of the museum. Ably headed up by Brian Case of Motus Motorcycles fame, George Barber's Design Center is there to encourage and explore design, especially with young people who perhaps do not have the means to really explore their ideas or turn them into reality. Mr Barber has generously outfitted the center with every type of creative and production tool you can imagine, including a couple of high-end 3D printing machines and full-clay modeling capability. If you're a designer with some ideas, please feel free to contact Brian Case at the Barber Advanced Design Center and talk to him about perhaps starting you off or taking you to the next step in your career. His contact information is in the show notes for this episode. I apologize in advance that the live audio quality recorded in the design center during the armor racing is not great, but I believe it's listenable. I hope you agree. George Barber is a such a generous man. It was I greatly enjoyed talking briefly with him. I do hope you enjoy our chat as well. Thank you very much. I greatly appreciate you, uh, oh, yes you talking sir. to me at such short notice. My uh, pleasure. My uh, pleasure. It was uh, that was a heartwarming moment just now to to see that young man just came up and. Oh yeah. And, That's uh, what
2: it's all about. It stir some thought, create some damn. I'll open the door for thinking and that's what I want and I keep telling people this is not necessarily motorcycles design. This is what teaches you how to design and what to do. And it may lead to a better toaster. It may right. lead to a better keychain.
0: A better mousetrap.
2: Exactly. <laughs> right. Right. So it's fun to see that. It's it, it is. Yeah, yeah,
0: it is. But I, I mean we're sitting here at Barba Barber Motorsports Park. I've, I've been here many times over the years. Yeah. What, what inspired you to, to start this?
2: Well, um, we started with a museum in downtown Birmingham and we were doing restoration. And I wanted a little larger museum. And I wanted a little better uh, area for restoration. And we came out here and looked at this spot. and I said, well, this would be great. Let's do a little bitty test track, a little bitty test track <laughs> just to test our restorations. And one thing led to another. <laughs> <laughs> As it does. <laughs> I mean, we got to the point where I said, you know, let's do this right. If we do it half ass at this point, we're going to have to come back in a year or ten years or whatever and completely redo it. So let's do it right the first time. Right. And uh, that's what ended up with what we've got now. And it's great fun doing it because while we were expanding it, I got uh, John Surtees, Dan Gurney, uh, Carol Shelby. Oh, I sent them a corner and said, What would you do with this corner? And they would send back and they'd say, Well do a little bit of angle and do this and do this movement and do so it was a fabulous experience dealing with these men and building this track and them helping me do
0: it. So the track really is is almost a collaboration between yes. these yes wow that yeah. must have been really exciting oh
2: fantastic and
0: have you named the corners is this is there a shelby corner or no, a there corner? there
2: really isn't i kept I, we were going to do that and i said no let's wait because something will happen and somebody will do something foolish or either wonderful we'll <laughs> name the corner after him okay and the only corner that's been named is Charlotte's web
0: ah, and that's okay.
2: because of the big metal spider we have there and we have a web there generally was painted on the on the, on the grass. And the press took it. I didn't I didn't say let's do this. The press started calling it.
0: Charlotte <laughs> Sean okay. So
2: okay. that's the only one that's been called. I think they call this in the museum turn or whatever, but
0: right. basically
2: we're waiting on something fun to happen and
0: named it after him. Right, right. So so you already had a had a small collection of motorcycles, I guess when yes. you went and you Brought them over here yes. and then it just exponentially slower. grew. Yeah. And and was there any kind of um, specific brand or motorcycle or type of motorcycle that you you were after? Was there something that you really that really inspired you to kind of not go really, one further? Not really. Mostly the engineering.
2: I looked at cars to look at them, to collect them and Cars are fantastic, but when you look at a car, you see a beautiful paint job and setup caps. You don't <laughs> right. see any of the engineering, really, and right. you don't see anything right. other than that. That's but when cute. you look at a motorcycle, oh my gosh, you see the cylinder heads, you see the front braking systems, the rear suspension, the front suspension, you see all that and that's
0: fascinating. Yeah.
2: So I would go to yeah. brands to get different approaches to different problems.
0: Right. That's why <laughs> I've always figured. That's why skeleton back watches were invented, because people like to see the mechanicalness of something. They want to see behind the curtain, mm-hmm. don't they? Mm-hmm. And motorcycles really do that. They do that. Yeah, yeah. Do you do you have a motorcycle here? I know we talked about this a little bit, but do you have a motorcycle? Not your favourite. But is there something that <laughs> all right do you have a do you people have a top always, five <laughs> people always
2: ask that i say no you don't have a favorite child right you know these are all my children but then i'll say well wait a minute because of a wonderful relationship i had with john Surtees for decades you know i got to know him and uh, i bought a lot of his machines that he used to win the world championships with and i'd have to say that my some of my favorite bikes are the MVs that he used to win the world championships. Right. And of course the the Formula One Ferrari that he used to win World Championships. He's the only man alive to win world championships on two wheels and four.
0: Yeah.
2: And so I kinda of lean toward that. I don't lean toward it, I jump toward it.
0: Right. Really. But then you feel disloyal towards the everything yes, else in the collection. Yeah, you really <laughs> <do>. <laughs> yeah. Well no wait a minute.
2: Yeah and you look at the gator, the
0: Dan Gurney invented. Yeah.
2: And you say, oh my gosh, that's
0: fabulous. I have real outside the box thinking. I mean, that stuff. And yeah. I told you earlier, I think for me, if I had to, if I had to mention one to me, it's Britain. Yeah. Again, I yeah. think these these men who think so differently and so far beyond their time. I look at the Britain and that, that to me, that bike isn't out of place even today. <laughs> and that thing's 20 years old. Yeah. So so it's so impressive how creative people can think far beyond, yes, beyond something. Yes. Is that perhaps what brought you to, this, to the Advanced Design Center so. here?
2: I think so. I want people to think about beyond what's happening today and see what's happening today and how we can improve on it or change it. And uh, I think it's working. We're getting people from all over the world that are showing interest in coming. Right. And we had a bunch of guys from all over the world coming before COVID. And right. COVID shut that down. Of course. And yeah. now they're pretty well restricted as well. So we we're trying to work that back and to get them here and have a big seminar of all these damn first class, unbelievable minds. And if we keep them from killing one another, it probably be <laughs> one fantastic meeting. <laughs> right. right. But you know, when you get egos right. like that together, it's,
0: it's sure. fascinating sure but just the collaboration of ideas and just being able to just stretch people's minds like that exactly you i mean you have the sort of the remote facility here we've just seen pierre Terblanche, yeah. you know remotely talking um to brian case and how's that that working now
2: uh, very well he's been here and he's having difficulty getting here again because of travel restrictions sure. but he has a home here and eventually he wants to live here
1: so ah,
2: okay. it's, it's fabulous, that relationship, and the people that know him also are connected and want to come here as well.
0: But essentially, how does the process work between him and Brian? So
2: Conversation.
0: Conversation. Talking. Right. Yeah. And just kicking ideas kicking around. Kicking ideas around. And then he'll come up with a design, he'll scan it into, yeah. into a document or into a file, and then send Brian it to Brian. It. Yeah,
2: Brian will make it.
0: And you have 3D printing here yes. and and clay modeling on that stage?
2: We've got just about everything that you can imagine here, and uh, we can do a lot. And of course, I say that, but in six months' time what we've got now will be obsolete. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So it's changing so rapidly. Right. But we're gonna to try to keep up and, and right. uh, particularly get these designers to tell us what they need to do. And of course there's no strings attached here, there's no you have to owe me this or all that. You come and you think that's what I want
0: people to do. Right, right. The only thing you're not allowed to do is not have a great idea. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's really impressive. I love the idea that the Barber Museum is very focused on history and, mm-hmm. and, and uh, the achievements in the past of, of great designers and even lesser designers, just everything across the board. It's, I think it's very healthy to look back at history and, and see oh, what yes. history has. Yes. But, but to be able to juxtapose that with looking forward and, and saying to people, bring your ideas and let's mm-hmm. see if we can bring them to life, I think is great. So, do you, do you see anything going beyond? I mean, obviously, everything here is internal combustion. And of course, the big thing nowadays, everything oh, so. everybody talks about is it, electric. Yeah. Do you see anything like that coming along?
2: Oh, yeah, electric's going to be the thing in the future, I think. That seems to be moving that direction as rapidly as I could ever dream of. (laughs) So we'll see, but uh, it's going to be an interesting time. It's interesting times on almost anything you look at.
0: I think it is. So hopefully,
2: you know, with the museum and the background being done properly and having the collection to look at, it's given us some, uh, what do you call it, credibility? Sure. That helps the design studio. If we just had a design studio over here in the back alley somewhere, it wouldn't mean much. But being here and having access to all this history, I think it's very meaningful.
0: Right, right. I think probably the most, the most one of the most interesting things about about this whole facility is just your attention to detail.
2: It's a curse.
0: <laughs> Were you? But I see the various art around here, the various sculptures.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, the ones outside at the front of the museum, the three standing yeah. wheeled, that's absolutely spectacular. Was there anything there that particularly inspired you in that? Do you have a favorite artist? Or
2: was oh, gosh, so no, not really. Uh, these, these things out in front of the museum are really interesting. People look yeah. at them differently, but I look at them as if it's a man morphing from a wheel. Right. You know, he's growing out of a wheel. Right. And they're racing, and they're looking back at one another. And one's trying to hold the other one back. And it's right. It's fun to do. It's, it's been interesting, too, about that. When we first installed them, they were turned 180 degrees around the other way, going away from the museum. When there was a chi- Chinese tour group that came through here, and they looked at them very carefully, and they came up to me and said, This is not good. They should be coming to the museum, they should not be running away from the museum. So, by Charlie, we turned them around 180 degrees. So, if you look at them now, they're running into the museum rather than away from it.
0: Wow, how fascinating. Yeah. I love the fact that you can take people's input. It was fun to see these great.
2: youngsters and they're all saying, Oh, no, this is impossible. This is not the way to go. And, this is great. we turned
0: them around. Yeah, yeah. And the, the sort of the big metal uh, creatures, the bugs and the insects yeah, the and the spiders. spiders. Yeah, yeah. And Because you had those right from the start, didn't you?
2: And yes, we crazy. did. When we first started this project, the Environmental Society, the Colorado River Society, attacked us viciously at every because we're going to ruin everything around here and ruin this and ruin that. And uh, the, all my people got kind of really kind of depressed and down
1: because right. we were really
2: attacked viciously with it. The families were attacked viciously. It was unbelievable. Wow. So I built this spider and I built the ants. I don't know if you see the yes, ants. Yes, for sure. captured the motorcycle right. and uh, butterflies and stuff like that. And I put them around and I invited the press in to see these. Right. And they said, what's this all about? And I said, well, I just wanted to tell you that the environmentalists were right. These crooners came out here and drank this water around this racetrack and look at what happened to them. <laughs> so we got a good press on that. Everybody laughed except the environmentalists. <laughs> right? And we got our mojo back. Right. We got our enthusiasm right. back and our strength back and we completed the project. That's and fantastic. now I take great delight in asking people to show me an environmental show me the
0: environmental disaster, I can't do it. No, 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 no. Just the the water features and the waterfalls, and it's just absolutely beautiful. It's a stunning, stunning facility. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate your time, and I just appreciate your gift to motorcycling, and and now to the future generation.
2: Well, I hope so. I hope it's been positive, and uh, if we can just get her going and get this thing, (laughs) this. This design center out there, most of the people looking just like this young man that came up to me early later on. Yeah. And said, gosh, what's that? One thing. Or so we're we're at least we're stirring some thought. Yeah. And as I said, it's not necessarily a design of a motorcycle, it may be the design of a damn toaster, <laughs> right? You know, or, <a> <laughs> right. or a design of a lock or a design of something.
0: So right. that's what it's all about. You know, I'm never gonna look at a toaster the same way.
2: Yeah. All right. Well I enjoy so much being with you.
0: Thank you and so and take care. All right. Thank you. You too.
2: Don't let any of my critters bite you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. <I> won't. <laughs>